The Bible is full of images of living in the overflow of God's blessing. The prophet Malachi describes an uncontainable heaven burst of blessings poured out upon us. In Psalm 23, David describes our cups overflowing while we are being pursued by the goodness of God. Jesus was an overflow specialist. He said that he came to give us an overflowing, abundant joy, and that if we would just believe in him, that rivers of life would overflow from our hearts. He came to bring us full life. But the Bible makes it incredibly clear that God fills us so that we will overflow for others. He loves us so that we can love others. He forgives us so that we can forgive others. He gives us life so that we can be life givers. He blesses us so that we can be a blessing. We live in the overflow so that we can live generous lives. This is not about what God wants to get from you. It's about what he wants to give to you. Generous people simply live life, love life, and give life better. Join us for 50 days of teaching, practicing generosity, and generosity challenges that put a smack dab in the middle of God's overflowing generosity. Hey, welcome to Calvary. Wherever you find yourself and however you found us, you are so welcome. It's really been a joy, at least for me, to be able to listen to some of the generosity stories of folks at Calvary. And and today's generosity story really sets up the message so well as we learn what it looks like for us to take steps of generosity, to become extraordinarily generous. So listen to Bridget's story, and then we'll dive into our text. Hi, my name is Bridget, and this is my generosity story. This past summer, I decided to start tithing 10% of my income monthly, um, and that was a huge leap of faith for me financially. Being a single parent on one income, um, I wasn't really sure how I would make ends meet each month. Um, It was really just pressing into God, taking that leap of faith um, that He would provide for me and my two girls. Um, Shortly after, I would say right around a month after, I actually got a letter in the mail from the housing authority letting me know that my name came up on the list to get assistance towards rent each month. So that was just a huge burden that was taken off my plate. Um, Just this realization that, you know, God's going to come through for me when I need it. And um, just taking that leap of faith, tithing, and recognizing that He's going to provide and and take care of us financially. Um, And just His way of saying, like, "I, I got you. I got you and your girls. This past year, most recently, during the 1% offering at the end of the year, I again decided that that was just something God was really pressing on my heart, um, just showing me a lot through finances um, to lean into Him and just have faith that He's going to take care of me, take care of our family. Um, So I decided to do that, and within a week, my car broke down, actually left me stranded on the the road when I was picking up donations for the Christmas extravaganza. Uh, The same people that lent me the car that I was driving actually came over, not only helped me get the car off the side of the road, got it towed back to Lewistown, but also exchanged me with another vehicle to use in the meantime. Um, The car that I ended up using, the Toyota Corolla, was his mom's, who she recently passed away a few months previously. 
So within a week or so, he actually messaged me, let me know the damage that would be done to the Suzuki, um, what it would cost and how long it would take for the repairs. But within a few days that same weekend, he ended up um, letting me know that him and his wife had talked about it and they just really thought that it would be um, a great option to just keep the Toyota Corolla, his mom's car, because it was a safer, more reliable vehicle with lesser miles and just wanted to know if I would be willing to keep that car instead. Um, it was just a huge blessing. It was just something I was really stressed about around Christmas. You know, this car repairs, what is it going to cost? Um, how is it going to affect my budget um, in December? And just taking that leap of faith with the 1% offering and then realizing, um, you know, God's going to have me no matter what. And being able to just have more faith um, consistently um, with my finances has really taught me a lot the last few years. Um, it has also given me just this level of calm and security, um, knowing that God's going to take care of me, that um, no matter what happens, that things are going to work out, that I don't have to stress, I don't have to be anxious, I don't have to have that fear mentality anymore. So let me start this teaching with a question. What is your name for God? That's kind of a funny question to ask, right? I mean, what, what do you mean? Like a nickname, like Big Daddy in the Sky? No, that's not what I'm talking about. You, you may not be aware of this, but in the Old Testament, the one true name of God, sometimes pronounced Jehovah or written Y-H-W-H, all caps, the one true name of God was, was too holy for people to speak out loud. But even though they wouldn't say the one true name of God, they did call him by other names. They usually gave God a name when they had a very intense, very real encounter with God, or, or they'd give him a name that described his character or how he was at work in their lives. For example, the all-sufficient God, the God who heals, God Almighty, the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God who provides, those were those are some of the favorite names of God. I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. One of our favorite names for God was the Lord of the Harvest. What's your name for God? John Bechtel lived in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a city where sometimes as many as 5,000 people might live in a single high-rise building on one acre of land. So along with a handful of other people, John began to get a heart cramp for these kids who lived in these buildings. And, and slowly this vision began to form in their minds. They wanted to develop a camp where kids could get out into nature and meet God. They found the perfect place. They found there was a company that had built a facility for about a million dollars, and the company said they would sell this facility to John and his group for $250,000. So one of John's colleagues said, you know, I'll try to do some fundraising on the side, and for three months he worked at it, but, but he got nothing. It seemed like no one could catch the vision, or if they could catch the vision, they didn't have any money to give. In three months of fundraising, he got one letter. One gift, one letter, a letter from a little girl in Georgia named Melinda Holmes. She wrote, please find my ice cream money for two weeks and close. Please use it to help buy a camp for young people in Hong Kong. And there was $1, $1 inside the envelope. That's all they got. Now, in God's economy, the God who gave his son Jesus to die on a cross, we're going to celebrate that in communion today. He, he's not impressed by the size of our gift, but he is drawn by the size of our sacrifice. At the end of three months, a friend says to John, hey, John, all we got is a dollar. John Bechtel said, well, you know what? I'll give it a try. So, so picture this. He walks into the company and says, we didn't quite come up with $250,000. Didn't quite make our goal. How much do you have, they asked. I've got a dollar. 
He shared the letter, he shared the dollar, and somehow that $1 offer traveled all the way back to the board where the, where the answer was, well, if the camp is going to be used to help young kids, kids, we'll sell it to you for a dollar. And today, even today, that dollar is framed in the camp as a reminder of how God has drawn a sacrifice. John Ortberg relates that over a million kids have attended this camp in Hong Kong. Over 100,000 kids have made a first-time decision to follow Jesus while they were at the camp. Years later, I love this ending, John Bechtel was at a church telling the story, and this young woman came up to him after the service and spoke to him and said, it's me, I'm Melinda Holmes, I was that little girl. And so John called everyone back into the church, and he said, we're going to take a second offering today. They gave enough money to fly Melinda over to Hong Kong. And can you, I don't know, can you just imagine her face and her heart as she walked through the camp, seeing for the first time all that God had started with her one dollar gift, the tears just began to flow down her face. One little girl, one dollar, and though a dollar might not be much to you or I, imagine the hardest sacrifice that would lead a little girl to give up her ice cream money for kids she would never see. And perhaps for Melinda, God will forever be known as the God who multiplies ice cream money. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament of a man, a woman, and a son who encountered this same multiplying God. His name was Elijah. We don't know her name. All we know is she was a widow in Zarephath. Elijah, on the other hand, was one of the greatest prophets of Israel's history. He was a a man who grew in faith and generosity, confronted injustice, and he he went to battle against evil in his country. And, And now there's a drought, if you know the story, a drought in the land brought on by God because of the wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. A drought in those days meant more than brown grass and watering restrictions. Drought meant no food, no water. Drought meant people were dying because at that time in that place, water was life. Elijah was one of the few people who truly followed God. So as the water dried up, God gave him a place by a river in the midst of the drought. And then when the river ran dry because the rain was gone, the story continues in 1 Kings 17 verses 8 through 12 when it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with the food. So he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called again and said, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. A little town called Zarephath and an unnamed widow. We we don't know very much about her. Her husband has died. She has no money and no hope not even for her son. She, she's not thinking about a next chapter of life. She's not dreaming about new initiatives. She, she's planning to die. And on the day Elijah walks into town, she's gathering sticks for a fire to cook her last meal. She has no money. She's at the very end of her flower. They will eat, and after they eat, she and her son will starve to death. This was not uncommon in her world. And here comes Elijah. He's looking for a widow sent by God. He's asking for a cup of water, great treasure in times of drought and and famine. And and she says to him, this is my last meal. I I have nothing more. (laughs) I don't know. You know, maybe 
Elijah is thinking, okay, God, that's kind of funny. (laughs) I guess I got the wrong woman. Ma'am, could you point me to the other widow in town? But God let Elijah know she's the one. I've sent you to her. And I don't know, but maybe in that moment, Elijah came up with a whole bunch of new names for God. Like the God who's laughing at me. The God who doesn't really care. Singing, God, I just spent all those days by a stream that was drying up, fed by blackbirds, and I I thought maybe I'd get an upgrade. Nice little cabin with a hot tub, but you send me to a widow who's lost hope and is on her last meal. But but in a a bit, Elijah is going to find out that his God is the God who works through widows. He is the God who is not limited by our poverty, the God who works through those who've lost hope, the God who can multiply last meals. And so Elijah says to her in verse 13, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Don't be afraid, he says, give what you have first to me. In other words, take a step of faith in the midst of your fear. And so often that's the process of generosity, isn't it? God requires us to step out in faith before he steps in to help. And so often the promises of God are not initiated until we take that first step. And that first step is oftentimes the frontier of our fear. I mean, that first step where all we have is God's word, God's promise, that, that first step beyond our walls can, can be a doozy, <laughs> You know, I I don't know if this will happen with all of us, but I know it will happen with some of us. With some of us, as we consider what God is leading us to give in those moments where we're called to think about what God would have us to give, as we pray for God to kind of stir up our hearts, there are times he's going to call us to take a step that may cause fear. I know that's happened with Lynn and I before. I mean, when it comes to generosity, isn't it fear that causes us to hesitate? Isn't there, isn't there a little bit of fear in the gap between what we give and, and our God-shaped capacity to give? This widow woman is, is poor, but you don't have to be poor to live life afraid of what you might lose. With, with an attitude of poverty, we're always focused on what we don't have instead of what God can provide, what God can do. An attitude of poverty creates a fear that God won't live up to our standard of living. I'll never forget when I was a kid, I'd visit my great aunt Anna and, and she lived through the depression and it formed in her heart an attitude of poverty. She wouldn't throw anything away. And when she died, we sold stuff out of her basement that was worth a small fortune, but she always lived like she had nothing. When I'd visit, she wouldn't let me make my own sandwich because she was afraid I'd use too much peanut butter. When I went to the bathroom, it was often with a reminder that I didn't need to use more than a couple squares of toilet paper. I mean, can you just kind of hear God telling Elijah and that widow and maybe even us, don't, don't be afraid. Listen, don't be afraid to be generous. Stop focusing on what you don't have and get your eyes on me. Take a step of faith. And let me just ask you, what fears right now are keeping you from opening your hands, opening your arms? What if the name that God wants to reveal to you is that he is the God you can trust? He is the God you can trust. Uh, listen to more of the story in First Kings chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. It says, For this is what the Lord, 
The God of Israel says the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day. There was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. Now, you just got to put yourself in the story. What, what do you suppose she's thinking? I must be crazy. Like I, I, don't, I don't even know this guy. Am I really going to do this? I, I know it's our last meal, but it is a meal. And, and my son is so hungry. And if I'm wrong, Elijah will be full and I'll be a fool. I'll be left with nothing. But, but what, what if... <laughs> What if what if his God will do what he says he will do? And put yourself in that moment where she pours out the very last of her flour and mixes it with the very last of her oil and makes a loaf of bread, not for her and her son, but but for Elijah. And she takes it to Elijah. And and I just I imagine her coming back home and just sitting there and just looking at the jar that once contained flour and the jug that once contained oil and just sitting there, kind of afraid to look. But what if? What what if? And finally she looks and and it's not empty. It's not a full jar, but but there's enough. There's just enough for for the next day. And the next day after making bread, again, just enough for the next day. And again and again and again and again until until God brought rain. The jar was not used up and the jug did not run dry. Imagine she's you. Maybe you've had one of those God provided for me experiences. I, I know Many of you have, but maybe not. But but even still, can't you imagine it? She she stepped out in faith and God stepped in with help. She gave and, and God brought an overflow of generosity. Her generosity started an, an amazing journey into the overflow of God. We don't know a whole lot about her life after this, but don't you suppose that that until the day she died, I mean, if it was you, wouldn't you look back and say, it was... It was good. As hard as those days were, they were so good. I I never felt so connected to God as I did in those days, living from one day to the next, needing to trust in his overflowing generosity. And and don't you suppose that if you were to ask her what God's name was, that she would say, oh, he, he is the God who overflows the jug in the jar. Uh, you've heard me say it more than once during this series. God has an unlimited capacity to give, but we have a limited capacity to receive. And if we want to live in his overflow, we we got to learn to let go and open up and give away to make space for what he wants to give us. We, We need to make space for the overflow. And from those days all the way back in Zarephath, I mean, don't you suppose that God has been trying to show us, show his people this way? And in fact, the teaching that explains the generosity of the widow of Zarephath is, is found all the way in the New Testament thousands of years later in 2 Corinthians 9 because God has been about this for all of time. And it's all about the creation of extraordinary givers. See, the, the widow of Zarephath became an extraordinary giver. Now, now what is extraordinary generosity? Let, let me just keep this in your mind. I just define it simply as something beyond your ordinary. Whatever your ordinary is, your you're, you're different. Your ordinary is different for you than it is for me. Your ordinary is not my ordinary. It's simply the call. Extraordinary generosity is the call to take a step beyond whatever your ordinary is. 
So in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. A lot of superlatives there. Now, the Greek word translated here as cheerful is the word hilaros. Our English word hilarious is a direct descendant from the Greek word hilaros. But listen closely. When Paul uses the word hilaros in verse 7, he he doesn't mean what we today call hilarious. He he wasn't saying God loves people who giggle while they're giving. The, The word meant specifically not grudgingly, but joyous. Specifically, because you are already persuaded that generosity is good. So cheerful givers are those who are already convinced and always ready, looking for opportunities to be generous, already won over spontaneous, non-reluctant givers, spontaneous, non-reluctant givers, like always just thinking, God, can I please, where, where can I give more? Now, on the other hand, when I ponder the life of Christ, especially what we celebrate today in communion, when I ponder the life of Christ and the story of God and Paul's teaching here, I got to say, our God is hilariously generous. If the word means ludicrous, ridiculous, shake your head and wonder as your stomach shakes with laughter, God is hilariously generous. For example, later on, read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. In the first part of chapter 8, it gives us a picture of hilarious generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth about a generosity commitment that they made together as a church about a year earlier when they had heard about some desperate needs in Jerusalem. So they were going to give to the church in Jerusalem. A year ago, their hearts were touched and they wanted to help. But now, a year later, they're finding it hard to actually open their hands and do what was in their hearts. So in, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 and 3, 4, uh, Paul holds up the Christians in Macedonia as motivation. And, and what he writes, what he says is this. He says, though they've been going through much trouble and hard times, their wonderful joy and deep poverty have overflowed in rich generosity. They gave not only what they could afford, but far more. In fact, they begged us again and again for the gracious privilege of sharing in the gift. Now, that's hilarious. I mean, how in the world do the words much trouble, hard times, wonderful joy, deep poverty, and rich generosity all end up in the same stinking sentence? It only happens when people have experienced the hilarious generosity of God. The Macedonian Christians were dirt poor, but they were begging for the privilege of giving. They, they want to be extraordinary givers, go beyond their ordinary And I really think there's a principle here. It just came to me in the last day or two, so it's not in your notes. But if you take anything away from this talk, take this. If we want to experience the hilarious generosity of God, we may need to step beyond our personal ordinary. See, I think our extraordinary giving leads to God's hilarious generosity. Uh, like Scott Lewis and, and his wife. They were attending a conference where Bill Bright challenged the people there to give $1 million to help transform the world through Jesus. $1 million each, not total, each. And, and the amount was just, 
It was hilarious to Scott. It was ridiculous, ludicrous. His machinery business was generating an income of less than $50,000 a year. And so Bright asked him, how much did you give last year? And Scott felt pretty good about his answer. I'd feel pretty good about his answer. He said, we gave 35% of our income, $17,000. And Bill said, why don't you make $50,000 your goal for next year? And Scott thought Bill had, had misunderstood. I mean, that's hilarious, right? Ludicrous, ridiculous, more than he had made the whole year before. But Scott and his wife decided to take Bill's challenge, and they asked God to do the impossible. And God did he provided in amazing ways, if you hear their story. So that finally on the last day with a miraculous December 31st provision, they were able to give $50,000 that year. And you know what? In the years to come, they passed the million dollar mark. Their extraordinary giving led to God's hilarious generosity. You know, over the years, some of you here at Calvary have given me glimpses of this kind of generosity. Like a woman who took a kingdom challenge. We, we made this kingdom challenge at one point many years ago. She said, sell something of value and give the money to God. And, and so she prayed and said, God, I, I don't really think I have anything of value to sell, but if I get any bonuses at work, I'll give them all to you. See, she was making a commitment to go beyond her ordinary. First check of the new year, she got a $117 bonus. She thought, that's kind of cool. That goes to God. Then out of the blue, a second check with a bonus of $600. She didn't even know what it was from. It's like, wow, God, do you want this too? It's mine, God said to her. Okay, it's yours. Which made it even easier when the third check came with a bonus of $1,600. And you should have seen the hilarious joy in her eyes as she shared her story. Extraordinary giving led to God's hilarious generosity. Isn't that Paul's message? When he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly, if you just plant the little bit, the most you'll reap is a little bit. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You reap what you sow. Sow with abundance, reap the bounty. And I, and I can't help but ask the question as I read that scripture, so what is God sowing? Right? What, what is God planting and harvesting? See, I think God is sowing extraordinary generosity. I think God loves cheerful givers so much that he is in the process of passionately creating them. I mean, can't you hear it? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's doing all he can do all the time to create cheerful givers. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this. I surely have. How many times have you ever heard somebody refer to this passage, God loves a cheerful giver, as a reason for why they can't give more? Hey, God loves a cheerful giver, and I guarantee you that if I give that much, I will not be cheerful. <laughs> Better back it on down to a more cheerful level. But you understand, right, that cheerful giving in this passage is not just a, a give-tell-it-hurts standard. It's what God is creating. He's creating cheerful givers. If we will trust his all-abounding hand and heart. That's what the widow from Zarephath would tell you. And it's definitely Paul's message in 2 Corinthians 9. Look at verses 10 through 11. And he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. 
See, this is God's call to risk the seed in hand for the harvest to come. And it's a promise that sooner or later, our extraordinary giving will lead to God's hilarious generosity. So so just ask yourself, what is my next step? What is my next step towards extraordinary generosity? Now, whether you're at one of our gatherings or watching online, we're making, we've made this little generosity map available to to everyone. And and I'm hoping that each of us, including Lynn and I, we're going to do the same thing. We'll take it home and and use it. And, And the map details five different places we might be and what it might look like for us to go beyond whatever has been our ordinary, extraordinary generosity. Maybe you've never given financially, or at least not to Calvary. Extraordinary could be a first gift. Maybe, maybe you've given, but it's not consistent. It's time for you to practice generosity. It might mean setting up online giving. And maybe your extraordinary will lead to being a true partner in the gospel, committing to, to something significant, or maybe even extravagant giving. Maybe, maybe even a step towards being 100% all in as a giver. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come as we talk about our 2030 vision. But, but can I encourage you to just go through this generosity map, pray the overflowing prayer on the back, and begin to consider what it might look like for you to take a step. And like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-7, each one of us must give as we have decided in our hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, let me say, if you don't trust Calvary, don't give to Calvary. This is not about what Calvary needs. This is about all of us growing as extraordinary givers. So here's my prayer. I'm asking God. I encourage you, ask God to make you what he loves. He loves cheerful givers. Ask God to make you what he loves. I mean close with a, a story. I, I got an email from a Calvary couple related to a giving initiative at Calvary that ended about eight years ago. We, we don't do these really big all that often. At the beginning of the initiative, they were moving into a house that they had been renovating, but they still had their old house as well. So with two mortgages, they were trying to figure out how to take a step of generosity, what kind of commitment they could make. She wrote to me in the email a year before. We could have given from our savings and barely even noticed it, but now with two houses on our hands, it was a stretch. She says, I vividly remember praying about it, and I felt like God was giving me an amount to pledge. I was comfortable with that amount. It seemed like something we could do, maybe even easily do, but as I kept praying, I realized he was challenging us to give that amount each year, so double what she thought. See, God was challenging them to a step of extraordinary generosity. As they went through the numbers, there was no way it was going to work. She said, as we approached that commitment Sunday, I felt sick each time I thought about it. But, but they did it. They made the commitment. And, and there were struggles. There were struggles the next two years. Some of them were financial. Some was simply the struggle of trying to figure out what God wanted them to do with the other house. At, at one point, they felt like they would need to either sell the house or cut back on their giving. And, and she wrote this. She said, during this time, my prayer life became constant. In fact, I, I would wake up at night to let God know how stretched we were. I'd pray as I was writing checks, knowing, knowing had, I, I had to time it perfectly. Each time, there always seemed to be just enough. 
she says, but, but then the floodgates of heaven burst open. And it almost seemed like God was taking away anything that we could rely on until we were only left with him so that he could then show us all that he could do. And suddenly we started to receive unexpected checks, a surprise bonus, back pay, random checks. Even Uncle Sam got involved. She says, I look back over those two years, it's been a huge challenge. Stepping outside my comfort zone, giving away our financial cushion was hard, but God provided. Yes, we kept our lives simple and the kids had to deal with even more of my cooking. She wrote, but we learned a lot and I've taken less for granted and it's truly opened my eyes to see his gracious hand of blessing on us. I love how she ends. She says, I I don't want to forget all that I've learned and experienced, the constant prayers, trusting every step of the way. I'm even more challenged to be generous because I know he provides. And as I prepare to write that final check, I have to smile and laugh to myself. I never thought we could give that crazy amount. But it was God's way of forcing me to let go and trust. And now to see all that he has done here and all over the world, it has been so worth it. See, they took steps beyond their ordinary giving and they discovered the overflowing, hilarious generosity of God. God made them what he loves. And that's my prayer for you, for all of us, that extraordinary giving will lead to an experience of his hilarious generosity as his hilarious generosity leads us to become extraordinary givers. And you know, if if there's any place, any way that we ever see his hilarious generosity more than we see in the cross of Christ. And and I don't mean stomach-shaking laughter hilarious. I mean ridiculously, lavishly, so far beyond ordinary that it blows away all the categories of generosity, that kind of hilarious. It's what we celebrate in communion today. And it's what Paul was remembering when he says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let me pray for you. Father God, as we take some time to celebrate communion and, and we're reminded of this hilarious gift, this ridiculous, ludicrous, extraordinarily generous gift from from you, the gift of Christ on the cross. Jesus, we say thank you for your generosity. It blows away all our categories of generous, that not only would you leave what you had in heaven, give give up what you had, and, and in your poverty become like us so that we could become rich. God, we're we're so grateful. And we pray that that today, in these moments, as we celebrate communion together, wherever we're at, that we will be reminded that you are amazingly, amazingly generous. That you would motivate us, that you would give us the the faith to open up our hands and open up our hearts and open up our lives to be extraordinarily generous. We thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.